where there's injustice. I've always believed in fighting. The question is, do you fight to change things or do you fight to punish? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of Richard Attenborough's Lord Richard Attenborough's epic, Gandhi. <laughs> is he actually a lord? But was he you, lord? You, you may not know that. You, I'm sure you don't know this, but this was a massive bone of contention in the Schmodown. If I can take a quick diatribe here, and by the way, this is John Roca, writer, producer, knows. Hello. <laughs> um, but in the Schmodown, a couple of years ago, right at the beginning of COVID, I think, um, we there was a live event in New York, and it was for the it was I think it was for the belt or for number one contender for the belt between Dan Merle, one of the greatest of all time, William Bibiani, and Brendan Meyer Jr., an actor who was became the kid in the Shmoda. Um, it was a tight, tight match with all three of them, and then there was a moment, and Bibiani, there was a moment about Richard Attenborough, and Bibiani challenged because. Um, Dan did not say Sir Lord Attenborough. And there was a big battle over this because the tech, was he a Lord at the time that he made, that he was in Jurassic Park? Was he a Sir? Was he? So there was a whole argument about, about uh, whether maybe, whether Dan said it right or wrong. So it's a massive bone of contention. I tweeted about Gandhi part one and that we're, we've got it coming up. Um, Oh, then when I when when our first episode dropped, I tweeted that week about it coming up, and Bibiani responded and said, "That's Lord Richard Attenborough." So very funny. Still a bone of contention all these years later. So that uh, I love that you just asked, "Is it Lord? Was he Lord? Is it Lord?" <laughs> I love it. I love well, it. this is the this is the fascinating thing about following each other on Twitter is you see weird things. That's true. That's you true. Which never have occurred to me except I saw that exchange on Twitter. It's like, what is that about? <laughs> But needless to say, we are back into the world of Gandhi. And yes. and we did uh, also want to say, you know, we've been talking a lot about changes we're making to Patreon. Yes. And one of the things, John, this was your idea. I think it was a fantastic idea is we're going to start doing monthly watch alongs. Yeah, we want to inspire more of you to support us on the Cinephiles. And we know to support, to inspire your support, we have to offer new things. So Steve and I have been kicking around a bunch of ideas for a little bit. And I mentioned one that really kind of uh, interested Steve. Uh, obviously, as well as myself for pitching it, is the idea of doing monthly watch-alongs. So many of you enjoy our analysis and our conversations and our breakdowns and our thoughts on these films. We thought it would be fun for you all to join us um, on watch-alongs. And maybe it's a movie that you all choose or we choose, depending on the situation and what's going on, and we watch it together. And there is no time restriction in terms of 10 years or whatever. There's yeah. It could be anything, as long as it's watchable and we, and we will... Uh, do we will share the screen so we all watch together on an unlisted link or on a Zoom uh, situation, and we can all watch together. Uh, and you can listen to Steve and I talk about it. And we don't, we're still kicking around whether it's going to be live or pre recorded, but that's the possibility. But that's what we want to do here f- uh, uh, as a new uh, benefit for being a part of the Patreon. I think we decided to make that at the ten dollar and above or ten dollar and above level. Ten dollar above. So if if any of you are at the one dollar or five dollar and you want to jump up to the ten dollars, I hope the idea of a watch along every month will inspire you to do that as well. And for those of you who haven't uh, donated at all, uh, at least a one dollar or five dollar support would be great. I mean, uh, it's only twelve dollars a year if you send it one 
and $70 a year if you send it at five. So those are things we're trying to create new ways to inspire you all to support us because we want to keep the show going and we know you all love listening to the show. I hate to correct you, but it would actually be $60 a year for five. You're absolutely um, right. It's this a discount. Why, right this is why I don't teach that. <laughs> That's right. And one other thing about Patreon is occasionally we give advance notice about what movies we're going to do, and our patrons can write in with their questions. And this is one we got, and it's funny because it relates to a bunch of things I've seen on Twitter since part one came out. Yeah. And this comes from Tanner McGuire, and he says uh, – that he must ask a difficult question. He says, if you do further research into the man that is Gandhi beyond his incredible accomplishments, you will also find some controversy. And he says, uh, there are prominent examples are his apparent racisms towards the black people of South Africa during his time, his sexist views towards women and his strange practice of sleeping nude with younger women in order to prove his chastity. Yeah. So we should address this. Okay. Yeah, um, I agree. We should. These are these are obviously very serious things, and we definitely need to talk about about them. But we also should say that there has been a very strong conscious movement to rewrite history and to reframe who Gandhi was in India today. Yes, and and we'll get into that sort of at the end, as when we yeah. get to the end of this thing. But but I think to some degree this is part of it. Not that these aren't serious things. So let's start with the South Africa stuff. Yes, there is no question that there are quotes of him talking about the natives in South Africa that yeah. we would find extremely distasteful and we should, and we should look, examine that. And there's also no question that he wanted to separate Indians and yes. from the natives of South Africa. And he felt that Indians should be treated like whites, not like the natives. He said in 1903, when he was in South Africa, he wrote that white people there should be quote, the predominating race. Now remember, this is when he was very young. Yeah. Okay? And he is a lawyer. He's educated, but he's also like indoctrinated in the English system. And remember this, we're looking through it with 2022 eyes, we can be like, oh, you know, judgment, judgment, judgment. But the progression of people, and we talked about this in the first part, Steve, the progression of a person, the progression uh, as he embraces and gets older and sees more, that's life. He also said of black people back then, they're troublesome, quote, very dirty and live like animals, right? And this is the irony sometimes when you talk to people of color, how they can sometimes hate other communities of color or or judge other communities of color, as you've heard white people judge communities of color uh, or some some races. Why I don't want to say all right, I, I, I got to avoid generalizations, but you've heard that before. So it's always mind blowing to me when it happens. It's always um crazy to me that you can be so aware of the injustices within your own community, but so unaware and so unself-aware of the things you're saying that mirror what people are, what other communities are saying about you or the predominant white community saying about your, your race or your people. So it's always interesting. But again, it's 1903. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't people who were against racism, racism in 19. Of course there were. But for his um, point of view at the time, and as indoctrinated as he was, uh, at the time, this was his point of view. But as he got older, that point of view completely changed, and he found himself very much in support of all races being equal, regardless of color. So, I, I you know, obviously, this is the thing we struggle with on the cinephiles mm -hmm. since the mm -hmm. very beginning of the show, which is how do we talk about things where stuff has changed? And yeah. 
there's no question in my mind that we should condemn those statements that he made in South Africa. I also think it's not realistic to expect people. I mean, Gandhi was so head and shoulders above and in front of so many things. And the fact that he wasn't in front of all of them is something that we should take note of. And the thing too, I can't find quotes of his or statements that he made about race later on in his life. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because when we're back in India, we're really dealing with issues of caste, yeah, which is a huge thing, not necessarily issues of race. My assumption is that his evolution on thinking about caste and untouchability would mirror what his evolution would, of thinking about race would be. Yeah, his biographer, uh, Ramachandra Guha, said that Gandhi as a young man went with the ideas of his culture and his time. He thought in his 20s that Europeans are the most civilized. Indians were almost as civilized and Africans were uncivilized. This is him talking to NPR about this a couple of years ago. It's a recent interview. He says, however, he outgrew his racism quite decisively. And for most of his life as a public figure, he was anti-racist, talking for an end to discrimination of all kinds. And that included gender discrimination because there are some uncomfortable things about Gandhi. But he also championed women in politics. So sometimes, you know, I think with all human beings, there are hypocritical or... Uh, not congruent statements or congruent thought patterns or consistent thought patterns about situations. And certainly when you think about a guy who championed women being in politics, championed women doing the things that they're doing, but then you're seeing how, you know, he was still um, agreeing to the differences between men and women and their duties within an ashram, within a community, but also thinking about um, how he slept with his grandniece, apparently not in a sexual way, but he slept naked in 19 in when he was 78, in his late 70s, he slept with naked with his grandniece when she was in her late teens because he said he wanted to test his willpower to abstain from sex. So this is the kind of thing. And it's 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 really uncomfortable and gross enough that it was a young girl to be a young girl that is a member of his blood family makes it even more kind of insane that he would be tempted. So I, I it's very odd uh, but again we're judging it through western eyes i don't know steve well let's yeah. well let's let's separate these out a little yeah, bit sure. because i think these are these are very very different things so the what i would say is a good way to look at people is a look at them based on what the time that they came up in yeah you know like he was born into a totally patriarchal society yes yes where the man was just the boss he was in an arranged marriage and there was a very clear thing about how the children should be treated how the wife should be treated and the fact that he had some of those thoughts when he was young of course he did we all think the way we're raised to think Mm. the better thing to look at is how does his thoughts evolve yeah right you know, and how far does he come? And he comes a really, really long way in terms of caste, in terms of gender, yeah. in terms of relationships within the family. He, I mean, the, the evolution of this guy is huge. Okay. This one is really weird and hard to talk about. There are a lot of headlines you can find on the inter, on the internet saying Gandhi has been me too'd or Gandhi liked to sleep with young girls or Gandhi liked to get naked in bed with young girls. Yeah. And that is entirely misleading. That is not what we're talking about. Clickbait. Absolutely. Yeah. And and what, what we should say, and this is, you know, we talked a lot about his diet and his fasting. Right. And this is an extension of that. There is a thing called brahmacharya and brahmacharya is sort of the ultimate thing to aspire to as a Hindu in terms of asceticism. In other words, how much denial, how much can you deny yourself? Yeah. Food is something you deny yourself. Alcohol is something you deny yourself. And sex is something that you deny yourself. Uh, Gandhi believed very strongly that sex should only be 
for procreation. It should, there should be no lust. There should be no fun in it. It's not something you indulge in for pleasure. Yeah. And he chose celibacy at a very young age. Mm-hmm. He also thought, and again, this is a weird thing for Western perspective, but yeah. in his mind, there's a direct connection between your personal ethics and habits and discipline yeah. and what happens in the world. So it's not just Gandhi had a lot of reasons why he felt like he had to behave really perfectly because of public opinion and because of dealing with the British Empire. But he also thought that his personal failings would have effects out in the world. So rioting, maybe I didn't, maybe my diet wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. So he would deny himself things in order to help change the world. Yeah. And so this thing of him sleeping with his niece, who was over 18, by the way, is that this was a sort of the ultimate sacrifice in his mind. I must be celibate, even in the biggest temptations. And that is what he was trying to do. He wasn't trying to get off on it. It didn't last very long. And there were a bunch of people around him who said, dude, don't do this. Yeah, yeah. This is really bad. And he was talked out of it. Like, and and the niece has never said anything negative about it. She felt it was her own sacrifice to make in order to prove her own celibacy. And that, you know, and is it a different, does it sound creepy and weird? Totally. Yeah. But it's not like, this is not a dirty old man who was into young girls. That is not at all what was happening. Yeah. And and listen, we got to be clear that we're two men having this conversation and maybe a female point of view would have a different point of view of this situation. So we should definitely make that clear in this, but the, I, I agree with Steve and how I see it. It was a man who's testing himself and, and, the, and it's crazy because well, it's not crazy. What I want to say is tough sometimes because great people, we want to put great people in the prism of normal people and we can't. Now it doesn't mean that we can't call them out. We can't single things out. We can't point things out. We can't speak about some of the failings or flaws that we see in them. Yes, certainly. But by the same token, you must also speak about all the greatness that they were to able to accomplish, all the incredible things that he did to try to change this country, uh, and the incredible pressures and weight that must have been for him. And also to try to stay devoted to his religion, devoted to his principles, devoted to his feelings about himself and the temptation. Because certainly everyone would have given Gandhi whatever he wanted once he achieved that idea of father of the country. Steve, we've seen so many gurus, cult leaders, political leaders uh, of all shapes and sizes and all credos and ethnicities and genders take advantage of power. And betray their principles and morals um, because they have such easy access to the um, uh, fulfillment of their desires. Whatever they desire can be fulfilled if they want it once they reach a certain level of power. So Gandhi being so astutely aware of himself and how he probably believed that his approach to the world is why things changed in India. There was this weight and fear possibly that if he veered off the path, India would crash into a brick wall with him. Uh, And certainly the things you spoke about in part one about how he felt like it was people's diet. That was the whole thing. And you just saying now how, if he didn't diet correctly, 
Uh, he'd be concerned how that might affect, you know, the, the movement or independence or whatever. And certainly as we get further into the movie, we start to see that come through in certain exchanges, how he felt he could stop violence in India just by fasting and, and, and change the course and the direction of violence just by fasting. So there's so much involved in how he approached the world it doesn't excuse anything but i'm just i'm just offering we're offering perspective i guess well, in looking at it well and it's if if, if this podcast is about anything yeah. it's about a lot of things but one of them yeah. is taking deep looks at things not yes, shallow yes, looks at yes, things yes. and so you know obviously we condemn these behaviors we condemn yes. those racist statements you know but we i also think as you said with great people some they're not they're weird. Great people yes. do weird stuff. Yes. And if you look at almost any great person in history, you can find stuff frequently a whole lot worse than what we're talking about with Gandhi. Oh, yeah. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., who was an adamant um, believer in non- – yeah. in fact, him sleeping in Gandhi's domicile after Gandhi had passed was kind of an important progression in him embracing – the nonviolent approach to civil rights and what influenced civil rights in his approach. So in the 1960s, he slept around. He cheated yep. on his wife multiple times. How do you, depending on your point of view, you can see that person as um, not that good, especially because he's a reverend. He's a man of God doing that, which carries even more weight. So he's supposed to serve as an example. And for him to, to again, um, indulge in his, carnal desires against the vows he'd taken for his wife you gotta ask questions jack kennedy there are so many great people on and on on yeah, and on who violate yeah so thank you tanner very much for your question i hope that we dug into it and did it justice obviously i think there's more to talk about with gandhi than oh sure we're, we're spent a lot more time talking with him and speaking <laughs> of which we are leaving the world of south africa where gandhi's triumph sent his name around the world and most importantly he grew very famous in his home country of india and that is where we're going to return to right now we hear a steamer horn and we're looking at the ship and there is a military band because the military, the new military governor of India is getting off the boat and they're celebrating his arrival, except there are way, way more people welcoming someone getting off the back of the boat who sailed third class. Must be that Indian who made all that fuss back in Africa. My cabin boy told me he was on board. God, he's dressed like a coolie. And we see him, and now Gandhi, who had been dressed in a suit, dressed like a British man, is no longer. He has a turban. He's dressed in Indian clothes. And Gandhi is immediately surrounded by press, by people asking questions. And the first thing they ask him, do you support the war effort? Because this is now the middle of World War One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, as a citizen, I wish to enjoy the benefits and protection of the British Empire, it would be wrong of me not to help in its defense gandhi when he was in south africa worked and as a medic in the ambulance corps during the boer war during you know oh, wow. wars against the zulus he felt that he needed this was real he needed to support the british empire but he absolutely refused to fight he refused violence and so working in the ambulance corps was a way that he could do that and he also encouraged indians to work in the ambulance corps during world war one and they ask, now that you're back in India, what are you going to do? And he, with a laugh, says, I don't know. 
I do love that the two British dudes on the ship are essentially a YouTube comment thread. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Right? Watching someone who's much more accomplished than making derisive comments at them. So I just was like, oh, my God, it's perfect. It's happening. It's, it's always happened. It's always happened. This is the first time, by the way, that we see Nehru, which is Roshan Seth, mm. uh, who is also in Temple of Doom. And he is just like Ben Kingsley, a spitting image of yeah. Gandhi. This actor is the spitting image of Nehru. It's incredible how much he looks like Nehru. And they want him to make a speech. And he gets up and says, I'm glad to be home. And uh, I thank you for your greeting. Did you think Gandhi expected any of this when he got uh, on that boat? I don't know, to be honest with you. But I'm sure he's humbled by it, if nothing else, right? And so it must still be crazy at this stage in his life that a guy who wasn't that, like, you know, didn't stand out that much, as you mentioned in part one, wasn't really seen as this kind of shining light of his class or anything like that in terms of his graduating class and in terms of being a lawyer, has somehow found himself in this position. Um, so it must all still be somewhat overwhelming to him, and he's navigating as best as he can. You know, you know there are a lot of famous people, leaders who said, oh, I never sought fame. I don't seek fame. And we can kind of like go, yeah, bullshit. You, yeah, well, you, exactly. you really did. I don't think Gandhi did. No, I don't yeah. Think he saw, I don't think that was a motivation for him at all. Yeah, to be famous. Um, and we also meet. He gets into a carriage with, and this is the first time we see Patel, which is Saeed Jaffrey, and he who introduces who Nehru is and says he's got his father's intellect and his mother's good looks and the devil's own charm. <laughs> so Nehru Senior, uh, the you know Nehru's father. Uh, he was a very, very wealthy man. And Gandhi needed a lot of wealthy men to support what he was doing. You know, one of the things that's not in the movie at all is Gandhi knew how to get money. Not for yes. himself, but he knew how to get people to contribute to these causes. I must say, when I first saw you as a bumbling lawyer here in Bombay, I never thought I'd be greeting you as a national hero. I'm hardly that, Mr. Patel. Oh, yes, you are. It's so interesting, again, how not only does Gandhi, the character, evolve, but people's perception of him evolve. Yes. Yes. Like, right now, Patel is still more important than Gandhi, you know, mm -hmm. in his mind, at least. Right. Right. And I love the way this scene works, which is that we're riding through the city of Bombay, and Patel is talking politics and what is going to happen, and Gandhi and is totally oblivious to the yeah. poverty that they're going through. Yeah. And that's all Gandhi can see. Yeah, because he's come, he just accepts it. And there's a shame on Gandhi's uh, yes. face. I mean, Kingsley does an incredible job because he, he, it, it pains him to see it. And he doesn't like to look at it. And it breaks his heart to see that, you know. And so you, you're watching that throughout that whole scene. And it is heartbreaking. And my guess he is... he can't fix it right now. He can't fix it. So. Right. My guess, and I don't know, yeah. I don't think 13-year-old Gandhi saw it. You know what I mean? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he had to evolve yeah. to see Lawyer it. Lawyer Gandhi never saw it. He just kind of accepted it as, yeah, as a thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, how many times have you driven through your city yeah. past the homeless? Yeah. And you've driven through, and I've driven through, and we all do, you know? Yeah. Because uh, we can't always take on all that pain. It breaks my heart every time I see it. That's for sure. You know, I used to do auditions down there near Skid Row sometimes. Mm -hmm. And going down there to do print auditions or to do 
commercial auditions, it was, oh, if you're a sensitive person, it can be quite heartbreaking to experience it, you know, and most actors are, most actors are open to it. You yep. know? So yeah, um, it's a terrible thing. And we go from that terrible poverty into ter- into incredible wealth and beauty. And uh, we see beautiful flowers and, you know, we're in this very rich environment, which I think the, the implication is this is Nehru's family's place. I'm not yes. sure. Yeah. And they introduce Gandhi to Mr. Jinnah, who is Aliuk Pad- Padamse. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, and I apologize. And this guy's face is so severe yeah. and harsh. It's like perfect, perfect casting. You For know? what they want him to be in the movie. Yeah. It is perfect casting, yes. Yeah. But this is also a source of contention for a lot of yes. people who criticize the movie. Do you want to go into that, Steve? No, please. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, please do. Please do. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, just he's clearly set up as the bad guy. Yes, he is. You know, and I don't know enough about him. Certainly, there was conflict between him and Gandhi. That's without question. But there's a lot of stuff that feels like it was his fault in the mm-hmm. way that the movie is constructed. Yes. And I, I think that, to some degree, is unfair. Yeah. And then they introduce, they introduce Mr. Bakash, I think, and he, they say, who I fear is awaiting trial for sedition and inducement of murder. I have not actually pulled the trigger, Mr. Gandhi. I have simply written that if an Englishman kills an Indian for disobeying his law, then it is an Indian's duty to kill an Englishman for enforcing his law in a land that is not his. And Gandhi's reply is so, it's like the slightest bit of shade but in the nicest possible way. (laughs) It's a clever argument. I'm not sure it will produce the end you desire. We hope you're going to join us in our struggle for home rule, Mr. Gandhi. Well, And Gandhi starts to answer, but he doesn't get there. And they take him to meet someone else. Charlie takes him away. And then we meet Professor Gokhale. This was a very important figure in Gandhi's life that isn't very much in the movie. Yeah. This was Gandhi's hero in a lot of ways. I mean, a really important figure. We are trying to make a nation, Gandhi. But the British keep trying to break us up into religions, municipalities, provinces. And Gandhi says a really interesting thing, which is... I have so much to learn about India, and I have to begin my practice again. One needs money to run a journal. The guy hasn't been in India in decades. Yeah. And when he left, he was a kid, basically. He's 45 when he comes yeah. back, I think, yeah. I love, I love what Gokhale says to Charlie. He says, Go on, Charlie. This is Indian talk. We want none of you imperialists here. All right, then. I'll uh, go and write my report to the Viceroy. You go find a nice Hindu girl and convert her to Christianity. That's as much mischief as you're allowed. Oh, such a great, great it's line. Fun. You begin your journal. I have little to say. India is an alien country to me. Change that. Go and find India. Not what you see here, but the real India. That's great. He's telling him, you've got to, which is what later that speech is going to be. He's like, if you're going to represent Indians, don't do what these other people have done, which is to just say they represent Indians and then not actually live amongst the Indians, live above them in these high, in these expensive houses and these, which is nothing, there's nothing wrong with you've accomplished these things, sure. right? But you don't really know what the day-to-day life is like for the Indian who is not at that exalted level, which a, rare, which a few people are at, a small percentage of the entire country is at. So he's telling him, go out. If you're, if you're saying you don't understand the country, you don't know the country, it's been so long, 
Go and see the country. Go and get immersed in the country. Understand. Speak to its citizens. Speak to the, the quote unquote, what you would call the untouchables in the caste system. You know, go and speak to everybody. Get a good being. Be in, in just enveloped by the culture and by and then boom, it'll come to you. What you need to say, what you have to say. And he says the things that we need to hear. Yeah, you know, which I think is brilliant. Um, Hoover always said an interesting thing. This is my partner on the documentaries. And as mm. I told you many times, he, you know, he, uh, he was embedded with the Mujahideen during the yes. war against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And this is what he said about Afghanistan is he said, one of the reasons that we were so messed up and didn't understand and made so many bad choices is all the people that Americans were talking to were from Kabul and, uh, Kandahar. Mm. They were all Western educated. They're almost all wealthy. And we didn't go out into the country and talk to the ma- vast majority of afghans who had very very different feelings and so we kept making these blunders because we're talking to only one it's not that those people aren't real you know members of the nation of afghanistan they totally are and those cities do represent part of afghanistan but not all of it and we didn't talk to those the other people we see it now we see it now with our political leaders no matter what party you're in how many of them have stopped doing town hall meetings out of fear of getting contradicted or called out or right. social media exposing the limits of their intelligence or the hypocrisy within their views? How many of them are afraid to be amongst the people? You know what I'm saying? We, you see it all the time. The people are barricaded as far away as possible from their leaders, from the political leaders here in our world. And that's that's what you're seeing. And then and it's the separation that implies elitism, no matter what side of the fence you're on. It's that separation that implies elitism. The control, all of that implies elitism. And so we're seeing that happening in our world as well, you know? And so, yeah, absolutely. Ah, yeah. And then we cut to, and I think this sequence is so beautiful for so many reasons. Uh, we're on the train out seeing India. And I, 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 one of the reasons I think it's so amazing is that it gives us a kind of a rest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Things have been pretty intense. And now we get to just see this beautiful scenery. And, and by the way, one of the hard things for this movie is they had to find trains from multiple different periods, including the late 1800 South African train. Yeah. Now we're in the 19, the teens in India. India did not have the most efficient bureaucracy when they're shooting this film. So they had, there were researchers spending hours and days and days and days going through the records, trying to find in this huge country where the old trains are, you know, and they did manage to find them. And we see Gandhi. Now his head is sort of shaved. Uh, His wife is there. Charlie is there. And we just see the Indian countryside. And at this point in the eighties, no one had seen this. I mean, obviously in India you had, but in in the Western world, we didn't see the beauty of the Indian countryside and the people like you do here. And, and of course the poverty. Yeah. The poverty. And they're traveling third class now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was interesting, you know, that the movie, our first sight of young Gandhi was fighting for his right to be in first class. Yeah. And now he is in third class. Nice little twist. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And Charlie and he are are just kind of looking around and they're leaning out to get some air. And his wife is not happy with them leaning out because it seems very dangerous. Um, And then we hear... And we see there are people riding on the top of the train. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. And Charlie climbs out of the window and Gandhi's wife is freaking out. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And he goes, going nearer to God. 
and he starts to climb up and she grabs his foot. <laughs> oh, it's so good. He's like, he goes, oh no. <laughs> just a simple kind of just a simple <laughs> statement because he's such a calm dude. And then, of course, the Attenborough cuts to the shot of from the outside watching the possibility. Yeah. But once again, this is Lawrence, right? The, this idea of the train. Yeah. Uh, you know, you sense that there's connections to Lawrence here as well, even this scene. Um, it's funny. Now I'm seeing other ones, too, because then he gets on the top of the roof and he yeah. has to become one of the people. Yes. And there's this moment where they're riding along and they see the tunnel coming. Yes. And he goes, and they're all bending down. Pray to God, Saeed. Now is when it is best to be Hindu. <laughs> and they go through the tunnel. Yeah. We see uh, Patel walking with Nehru. And they sit down with Jinnah. And they say, talk about we're going to have, you know, a, a big meeting. And we should invite Gandhi. What the devil's happened to him anyway? He's discovering India. Which is a lot better than making trouble where it matters. Invite him. Let him say his piece about South Africa. And then let him slip into oblivion. And there is a look between Nehru and Patel that shows that's not what they think. We cut to a wrecked train. And what we hear is that this was an attack from insurgents, that they're terrorists, essentially, in India. And they killed some soldiers, and the soldiers killed a whole bunch of Indians. And now we're at this huge meeting in a tent, and Jin is giving a speech. India wants home rule. India demands home rule. It's a typical political speech. Yes. Get some applause. Many, many times. Yeah. And Patel, you know, congratulates him, goes to the podium. And let no one question that Mr. Jinnah speaks not just for the Muslims, but for all India. And this is the plant of the huge conflict that's going to go throughout the rest of the film is the conflict between Hindus and Muslims and whether or not they're all together or not. Yeah. Um, and he says, and then Patel starts to introduce Gandhi. And I love that as he starts to introduce him, Gandhi thinks he's going to get a short introduction and yeah. to stand up and then has to sit down. Says, and Patel says that he's been reading his journals. I'm flattered by Mr. Patel. I would be even more flattered if what he said were true. But, but it is true. I read it often. And Gandhi puts on his glasses and starts to make the speech. And as he starts talking, people start getting up and leaving. Yeah. Not interested in him at all. Yeah. I have traveled over much of India. And I know that I could travel for many more years and still only see a small part of her. And yet I already know that what we say here means nothing to the masses of our country. Right there. Mm -hmm. He is not making the normal speech. Yeah. Here... We make speeches for each other. And those English liberal magazines that may grant us a few lines. And when he says that, people start to stop. Can we stop for a moment? I think this is a great line that hit me harder in 2022 than any time I've ever seen the movie. When he says that, these English liberal magazines that afford us a few lines, right? And I think this is a valid point to make. And it's an interesting uh, line in the movie that still carries weight today because a lot of these liberal magazines or a quote unquote liberal are run by white people 
And so they give you a few lines when you're talking about your things, issues with people of color, issues that were not represented, issues that were taking, having opportunities taken away from us and replaced by white people and things of that nature. And I think this is an important thing to highlight here in this moment because uh, it is probably an unintended shot across the bow, or maybe it is an intended shot across the bow, but it is still happening today. And I find that I found that to be just an, such an interesting moment to highlight in the middle of a speech, just a quick few words in that one line of his speech that I think resonated with me a lot strongly, a lot more strongly this time than I ever have when I've watched the movie before. It's funny. It resonates with me too in a a different way because what I was thinking about was how hard do people work to get their one sentence of a quote that will fit onto Twitter? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a great point. And what, and the thing about it is it warps everything Yeah, because more extreme things get retweeted on Twitter mm-hmm. than calmer things. Mm-hmm. And the desire to be retweeted or yeah. quoted or to get that little blurb or comment on, you know, on MSNBC or Fox or whatever. Yeah. That's the goal. The goal is not to solve the problem. The goal is to promote myself. You know what I mean? Yep. And everyone is just out trying to promote themselves rather than saying imp- the, what's important, yeah. you know, what's true. Except for the cinephiles. Except for the cinephiles. Yes. We promote what's true, which is we have an episode coming up from the cinephiles. Well. <laughs> well, and <laughs> the cinephiles is 97 hours long. That's right. You know, we don't fit on a tweet. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> But the people of India are untouched. Their politics are confined to bread and salt. Illiterate they may be, but they're not blind. I love that because... What we didn't see, but I know happened. Yeah, Gandhi didn't just look at these people. He talked to them. He talked to them village after village with farmers, with merchants, with poor people, with untouchables, with everybody. Yeah. They see no reason to give their loyalty to rich and powerful men who simply want to take over the role of the British. That line, man. Yep. That hits, that hits real home. They want to replace yep. the people ruling the Indians with just... A different color, but the same conditions. That is powerful, man. Yep. To say. Well, and, and I mean, how often does someone get up at the th- at an event? Yeah. And basically throw shade at the people throwing the event. That's who he's, he's talking about. Jenna. Yeah. He's talking yeah. about Patel. He's talking about Nehru. He's talking about all of them. My brothers, India is seven hundred thousand villages. Not a few hundred lawyers in Delhi. <laughs> And Bombay. By the way, again, Ben Kingsley's ability to evolve this character. Yeah. Because, you know, from the first speech where he's burning the passes to the big speech in South Africa where he is much more confident to this guy. Yeah. This guy doesn't have to, he doesn't have to do anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He's not trying anymore. Yeah. He's just speaking. Until we stand in the fields with the millions that toil each day under the hot sun we will not represent india nor will we ever be able to challenge the british as one nation and again the slow but enthusiastic applause because the leaders will motivate you and look we're seeing it now political leaders movement leaders leaders behind a microphone leaders behind a tweet leaders behind a website you know, go fight. 
they're not going to be down on the front lines. They're not going to be down mixing it up on the on the in the battlefields. And this is what he's saying. He's not saying you need to go fight and put on a uniform. He's saying these leaders who sit back and relax in their their comfy lives think they speak for you, but until they actually go down and and get to know the the people they're representing, they actually don't represent you. They actually don't know what your desires are, what your interests are, what your concerns, what your worries are. And so they won't know what they're fighting for other than power. They're fighting for power. You're fighting for independence. There's a difference. Right. And I think, and freedom. And I think that's so, it's, it's like bubbling under the surface of everything he's saying, but it's there, right? It's yep. there to catch. And you're right. Not a lot of people would be willing to kind of go at the people who put on the um, event the, and yeah. gave him the microphone yep. to speak his piece. But those are the people that I believe deserve the most respect because they are consistent in the calling out. They're consistent in the highlighting things. And it's something I've struggled with at times when I've seen issues with an organization that I'm being part of. And here I'm calling out other people, but I don't, I don't always call the people, the organizations that I'm a part of out. And I sometimes struggle with that, you know, and, and it's, I, I respect that Gandhi does this in the scene, in the movie. It's so, I don't know, just, it, it takes an incredible amount of guts you know, because he's a rich people that could have buried him. Oh, yeah. You know, well, and this is why I think it was in our last episode. I said that I, I just feel more and more like I lack the courage of my own convictions. Mm. This is it is it's not, it's, you know, criticizing the people that everybody knows I'm against. That's not the courage of my yeah. conviction. I lack. Right. It's criticizing the people that I'm a part of. That's yeah. where I lack the courage of my own convictions. Yeah. And I'm working on it. You know, I'm going to keep working on it. Oh, one, one other thing I want to point out when, when, when normally if a politician gets up and says something like until we stand in the fields with millions who toil each day under the sun, we will not represent in India. Yeah. Normally a politician means that metaphorically, right? Gandhi means that literally. Yeah. We, yeah. I am not only am I going to toil in the fields and spin my own cloth and, you know, make my own salt and clean the latrine, but I'm expecting all of these guys sitting behind me to do the same thing. Yeah. It's not a metaphor. Exactly. Uh, I love that Nehru reads, leans over to Patel and says, Have you read his magazine? No, but I think I'm going to. <laughs> so Gandhi was right to call him out. Gandhi yep. was right to call him out. Well, I love the slow shift in status because Gandhi is just going to go up and up and up. And these guys are going to realize they are beneath him in this powerful way. Yeah. We're in this beautiful car in the fields. And Nehru is driving with a bunch of rich, young dudes, all dressed like the British, all dressed in European clothes. Yeah. And they're kind of joking about where they're heading. Yes, I'm sure this is the direction India's taking. <laughs> to think I almost got excited by Mr. Jinnah when all this was awaiting me. <laughs> yeah, because uh, that's that's the laughter of, of the... Um... I don't know of the pampered of the of the elite. yeah rich spoiled kids yeah. yeah rich spoiled kids yeah exactly well and they've been sold like you know you need to go to Cambridge and you need yeah. to yeah of course that's where the power is that's where the truth is that's what I'm aspiring to be is be like the British exactly and now they're going off to some farm in the middle of nowhere mm -hmm. to talk to this you know little guy who's not wearing European clothes anymore I try to live like an Indian as you see it's stupid of course because in our country. It is the British who decide how an Indian lives. So that's a lot of line right there. Yeah. 
and he's doing work. He's cutting something, you know, scraps that are going to be fed to the goats, I think. And he says, And from their luxury, in the midst of our terrible poverty, they instruct us on what is justice, what is sedition. So it's only natural that our best young minds assume an air of Eastern dignity while greedily assimilating every Western weakness as quickly as they can acquire it. it. He's not trying to shame them. No. But certainly they do feel ashamed in that moment. And you see the actors do a really great job. It's not overt, but you can tell it flash across their face. You can see the shame and the embarrassment even flash across their faces as Gandhi, the guy who they were just laughing about a few seconds earlier in the film, yep. is highlighting some, a journey that he's been on. Because he himself was indoctrinated by these Western ideologies and belief that he had to be, you know, he had to ascribe to these Western um, uh, ideas and tenets of existence. And he has broken that within himself. And so he's telling the young people that they too must do the same thing in order to really understand and how to go about achieving independence for India from the British. You know, what's interesting that I was just... He's not forcing anything no. on these people. No. He's just what? speaking the truth. Yeah. And it's sort of like, look, if you pick up what I'm saying, that's fine. And if you don't, that's fine too. Let's go feed the goats. Let's go feed the goats. <laughs> and I love, and that, you know, that he says these lines. Why should the British grant this home rule? And then the next line is. Yeah, we must take the peelings to the goats. <laughs> and then back to. We only make wild speeches or perform even wilder acts of terrorism. We've bred an army of anarchists, but not one single group that can really fight the British anywhere. And then they go, wait, but you said you didn't want to fight. Yeah, he says, and his response is, Where there's injustice, I've always believed in fighting. The question is, do you fight to change things or do you fight to punish? You know, and I thought of South Africa when he said that line in the movie watching it this time around for the show, because, you know, Desmond Tutu and others put on those... Um, truth and reconciliation. Yes, truth and reconciliation events for people to speak about what they had done and ask for forgiveness or to hear and give some closure. But it wasn't set up to punish, you know. And so it, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult line to walk because yeah. I think people should be punished for committing crimes, committing that they knew were terrible. You know, like we're we're going to see later that military um, general who pulls what he pulls in that massacre. Oh yeah. There is, there should be the worst, worst possible punishment for something like that. But you also have to factor in. And I think which that was the truth and reconciliation is that you also have to create space for people to see the error of their ways and find their way back to ask for forgiveness and punishing so many is almost impossible. And if by doing so you become what you were rebelling against, then what's the difference? And that's always the most difficult thing to walk because humans are inconsistent. We're hypocritical. We're constantly contradicting ourselves. And so you're always trying to find what's the right path out, the most principled path out that keeps me as consistent as possible if you have any semblance of self-awareness. You know? The big thing to me, I always think, is like finding a way to move on and have things be better. Yes. And yes. like how do, you, how do we do that? Because if the punishment isn't quite right or seems unfair – then someone will come back and attack you. 
And then yes. you need, and then you know, and then other people need to be punished, and you should be punished for how you punish them. And we go back and forth and back and forth. And just on a personal level, like almost all the time, if you have a fight with your girlfriend, your mom, your friend, whatever, yeah, they will. You will bring up that thing that they did. Well, they're going to bring up that thing that you did. Yeah, you're going to go round and round. And it's like, well, how do we get through this and get to some place that's better on the other side? You know, and that's what Gandhi's not thinking about how do we get home rule? Yeah. He's thinking about farther down the line even than that. Right. For myself, I found we're all such sinners, we should leave punishment to God. And if we really want to change things, there are better ways of doing it than derailing trains or slashing someone with a sword. And then, and this is so great. And what's funny is you could see how his words are hitting each of these people differently. Yes. In, in particular, yeah. how they're hitting Nehru. Yeah. Um, and then his wife calls him for dinner, and I love this moment. He turns to them with a big smile and says, You see, even here, we live under tyranny. And then runs off, and it's really cute. And Nehru, deeply moved, I think, says, yeah. What did I tell you? And one of the other guys, sarcastically, says, I can see the British shaking now. <laughs> Nehru gets it. Yeah, of course. And, and there'll the always be people who don't believe you or yeah. don't believe in you. That's just part of it. But you will win out in the end, you know, if you stick to your principles. Well, and you know what part of it is, I think, is because you mentioned the shame that they felt yeah. as he was talking to them, is that to accept what Gandhi's saying, you have to reject what you've been doing and yeah. accept shame. And not everyone's ready to do that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, there's a dissolve to a beautiful shot of birds flying over the river. And by, the way this happened was they're on set shooting every day. And Richard Attenborough notices that the birds fly across that river every day at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that's how he set up that shot. He said, we just got to be there, you know, 3.50 tomorrow afternoon and the birds will come back. Yeah. And someone comes and says, I'm looking for Mr. Gandhi. And it's this old man with a great face who we yeah. saw listening to him at the meeting. Our crops, we cannot sell them. We have no money, but the landlords still demand the same rent. We have nothing left. And his wife is there, and Gandhi looks at her, and there is this powerful look between them. And we cut to the train. This is the first really big thing that Gandhi did in India. And we watch as the train comes into a station and there's a huge crowd waiting for the train and a British officer sees it and a young guy and goes, you know, what's going on? The agent got a telegram and I just said he is coming. and gave the time of the train. Who the hell is he? <laughs> and they climb down and we see that old man walking Gandhi through the crowd and the soldiers rudely are pushing through the crowd. Yeah. Not nice about it at all. And come face to face with Gandhi and says, who the devil are you? And he says, and again, this is the confidence. Now we're seeing the true power of him. My name is Gandhi, Mohandas K. Gandhi. Well, whoever you are, we don't want you here. I suggest you get back on that train before it leaves. They seem to want me. <laughs> yeah, which is great, right? Yeah. They seem and, to want me. and he threatens to arrest him. And he says, on what charge? And the thing is, these British guys, even though he's a young guy, he's not used to being talked to like this nope. by an Indian. I've been handed a badge. Who yeah. are you to speak to me in this way? I've yeah. been handed a badge. And he's a bit put off because he's not. I mean, because honestly, your only rule, like you said earlier, no one can climb your back unless you bend over. Right. Yep. 
Same thing here. Yep. You're watching the example. If those Indians turned on them, they would absolutely be smushed by them. Just from the, the numbers, the absolute numbers. Yep. So you're, you're only allowed to rule if they let you rule. And once they realize that they don't have to let you rule, there's a change. And this is what every government fears, every occupying force fears, um, is when they're controlling large numbers of people, is all of them in mass um, coming to the conclusion that they don't have to let this happen anymore. It's every, every occupying force fears this. And so in that moment, you're seeing a young kid, probably fresh out of whatever, using the tactics that he thinks I can talk down to this person because he is just an Indian and I have no knowledge of him when in fact he's much more accomplished and intelligent than you are at this point in your life. And he absolutely outwits you, you know? Well, and it's, he, the young guy's like, I'm the British empire. Yeah. <laughs> this has always worked. Yeah. It's worked my whole life. It's mm -hmm. worked for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And now this little guy is standing in front of me and I'm looking around going, Oh, my whole vision of how the world works is actually not right. Yeah. You know, um it's not working it's not yeah. working yeah, yeah. It, it, it's funny we've been talking about lawrence arabia this to me is malcolm x at the police station you know in chicago with all of the guys lined up outside oh yeah it just demands this is what's going to happen yeah and the police are like you can't push us around that doesn't and then they go oh we we actually you can push us around <laughs> i love that he says i didn't want any trouble I'm an Indian traveling in my own country. I see no reason for trouble. There better not be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he backs down. Yeah. By the way, his um, the second yeah. guy in charge there with him is Bernard, a young Bernard Hill who was Theoden in the uh, Lord oh. of the Rings films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of great British actors in this movie. Yeah. Who are just starting out or just kind of young. Yeah. yeah. And then we go to there's, you know, an old man on the bed. Uh, obviously very ill with his wife and he describes what's happening. And basically the situation is that they have been ordered to grow indigo, which they use as dyes for cloth. And it used to be that India had a huge uh, manufactured all tons and tons of cloth, but now with the industrial post-industrial revolution, and in particular, there's a connection between uh, the U S yeah. and India because uh, cotton started being produced in the South. Yeah. And that cotton in raw form went to industrialized north of the U.S. and to England, where they manufactured clothing. Up till this point, cotton was like a, a, a luxury. Nobody had cotton. Everyone wore wool clothes. Even in India, where it's, you know, 100 degrees, they're wearing wool clothing until this cotton thing happened. And then it's like, well, let's buy cotton. Everyone starts buying their cotton from England. But the landlords don't let these people stop growing indigo. Yeah. And but the indigo is not worth any money, and so the land they're they're taking everything. And this guy says, "We could, we sold. The police have taken the rest. There is no food." I understand. The landlords are British. He nods. What we can do, we will try to do. People are so moved by him just saying that. <laughs> and then we cut to Conti on an elephant <laughs> riding and Charlie's there and they talk about, you know, that the whole region is like this, hundreds of thousands. Then someone rides up on a bicycle and says, Are you Mr. M.K. Gandhi? Yes. I'm sorry. You're under arrest. And Gandhi with that 
confidence and that power says, I'm not sorry at all. By the way, arresting Gandhi is one of the worst decisions the British ever made. Arresting anybody who is a political, who is a leading a movement is one of the a worst. Peaceful decisions. movement. A peaceful movement, yes. Yeah. The peaceful movement, yes. It's great clarification, Steve. It is one of the worst things you could ever do. Well, and this is why it was so, there's such a connection between Gandhi as a human, as an individual, being totally above reproach. Yeah. Like you, like you just can't say that this guy is doing anything that yeah. deserves being arrested other than that you don't want to give his people freedom. Right. We cut to this cricket game. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what they hear is that the whole area is about to riot. And there are crowds of people standing outside of the jails. And Charlie walks up to go see the prisoner. And there is Gandhi uh, in jail. Yeah. This scene between Ian Charlson and Ben Kingsley Richard Attenborough says if he had to choose one scene of everything he's done to represent great cinema acting, this is the scene. Wow. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking scene. Yeah. Um, the other scene he says that is up there is Anthony Hopkins in Shadowland. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. One of quietly one of the best films ever made in the 1990s that no one talks about. Yeah, and Richard Richard Attenborough directed the hell out of that movie. It's gorgeous. For anybody listening, if you haven't seen Shadowlands, it is one of the best Anthony Hopkins performances, and his chemistry with Deborah Winger is fantastic. And when what happens happens to him at the end of the movie, his reaction to it is one of the best acting scenes I've ever seen in my life. I remember seeing that in the movie theater long before there were assigned seats, and I was sitting in the front row, (laughs) the right, the farthest right hand corner scene. So, you know, it's one of those movie theater experiences where your neck is just brutalized by the end of the movie. And I was captivated through the whole thing. Did they take your clothes? These are my clothes now. You always had a puritanical streak, Mohan. If I want to be one with them, I have to live like them. Yes, I think you do. But uh, thank God we all don't. My puritanism runs in a different way. Far too modest for such a display. (laughs) And then this is where you said it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Well, what do you want me to do? I think, Charlie, that you can help us most by taking that assignment you've been offered in Fiji. That's rough. And, and, and watch Eden Charlson take that in. It's very painful. Yeah. I have to be sure, they have to be sure, that what we do can be done by Indians alone. And then he asks him to take some of his writing and get it out into the world. Yeah. And you watch Ian Charlson. This is where his performance is so good because him, he accepts that. Yeah. Oh, I, this is the, the most important person in my life, I think. Yeah. And that he is right. And that I have to leave him and not be a part of this. Yeah. And him sort of processing it as he says, well, uh, I must leave from Calcutta. And soon, uh, you'll have to say goodbye to Bar for me. There are no goodbyes for us, Charlie. Wherever you are, you will always be in my heart. Mm. And then that smile, Gandhi's smile. Yeah. Very powerful. The warmth, a warm smile. Yeah. yeah. But it's true what he says. The stripping yeah. away, you know, they need to see that it is all Indian and not helped by the British. Yeah, and maybe there were the criticisms in real time for what happened in South Africa and cozying up to the whites. Maybe this is him, like in a way, hearing that criticism and making this decision and knowing that he has to walk this path with Indian people only. 
so that it isn't seen as some kind of, you know, joint venture. Um, and that, that's pure. But yeah, right. But Ian Charlson's acting. I mean, and I imagine in real life, maybe this person suspected that this was coming at some point. Mm. And so when the moment happens, and I'm not, you know, I, don't, I never read an interview from Ian Charlson about this or, you know, because he passed away so young, but like, I would imagine as an actor, like, that's something you consider when constructing the character. Did I know that he was going to eventually make this decision? I know it's in the script. He does make the decision. But right. as I'm constructing this character, doesn't he know? And in that moment, I think there's so many different levels that um, Ian Charlson is playing in as he's processing these words from Gandhi in the scene, from Ben Kingsley's Gandhi in the scene. And I think it's great. To, and I, Attenborough was absolutely correct to highlight this as one of his best scenes. Yeah, and it's a small, quiet, simple yeah. scene. Um, we cut to the hearing and the magistrate and his clerk, they're all nervous because the courtroom is packed. People yeah. are angry. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, well, how did they get all these people to come here? And what we hear is that, you know, an English clergy sent a number of telegrams. Uh, one even went to the viceroy. And the army well, he did is, send his report to the viceroy. <laughs> he did. He, right. He did send his report. To, good point. <laughs> um, and. Gandhi stands and everyone just silence immediately. You have been ordered out of the province on the grounds of disturbing the peace. With respect, I refuse to go. Do you want to go to jail? As you wish. This reminds me, and then we're waiting, you know, we know that Gandhi read the Bible of Jesus with Pontius Pilate, you know, mm-hmm. accepting what the, the condemnation. Are you king of the Jews? And those are your words, not mine. And what's so funny is he doesn't want to put him in jail. He knows he's got people ready to riot all around him. Yeah. So he wants Gandhi to capitulate. So I don't have to put you in jail. So he backs off a little bit. He goes, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put you on bail for a hundred rupees. And Gandhi says, I refuse to pay a hundred rupees. And people laugh. <laughs> and he said, and Gandhi's going, go ahead, put me in jail. Yeah. And the guy finally goes, uh, then I'll grant your release without bail. <laughs> it's a good negotiation from the, yeah. once again, from an advantageous position in his mind. And people start to chant. And this is the first time we hear Gandhi. And he's outside. It's pouring rain. And these young men in suits, much like the young men in suits that we met a little while ago, come, but these are enthusiastically here to help. We received a cable this morning from an old friend who was at Cambridge with us. His name is Nehru. I believe you know him. Indeed. He tells us you need help, and we have come to give it. And Gandhi immediately gives them instructions, like a general, you know? I want to document coldly, rationally, what is being done here. It may take months. We have no pressing engagements. (laughs) You'll have to live with the peasants. And they nod. There will be risks. And they nod. And Gandhi smiles. What's great here in comparison, and I don't know if Attenborough did this on purpose, but if you compare this to the scene we were talking about just a few minutes ago, yeah. Steve, with the young people there with Nehru, these are a different um, a different set of young people in terms of their approach. And you know, it occurred to me as I was watching this film, this is an old man talking, but young people are the energy you need to change the world. It oh, is yeah. old people who have to take that energy, or older people rather, not old, but older people who have to take that energy and understand how to change the world in a way that 
can still allow the world to function, right? Just like what he says in um, Lawrence, what uh, uh, Alec Guinness is, uh, says, like we have we have both no longer we no we both have no use for Lawrence anymore, right? You know, get out. You leave the room, Lawrence. This is a, this is a conversation for old men to make these negotiations and do these things. It's the same thing here, right? Gandhi is saying to the young guys, look, if you want to be a part of this, this is all the stuff you have to do, but they're coming with the right energy. And you can see these actors, once again, do a great job. It's a great direction from Matt Burrow because he's the director. He knows what he wants to see from these actors in this moment. You see them from the giddy happiness and the sarcasm, or sorry, the joke they make about it. You know, we have no pressing, but, and then he tells them what they have to do and they slowly embrace the seriousness of what he is asking them to do. And it comes across their faces, which adds so much life to this simple scene in this movie. But it shows you that young people are now getting on board. Educated young people are getting on board and they're inspired by him. And now the sky's the limit, you know, because you need help. You can't do it by yourself. You need people who are willing to sacrifice their time and energy to uh, help you get uh, your message out and also help you fight this fight. Well, and I think too, the guys that visited him before, they were visiting some old, some weird guy feeding right. the goats. It was like a, they were like tourists. Yeah. Right, right, right. This guy has actually done it. He's gone up against the British Empire. Yes. And the British Empire has begun to shake a little bit. Yep. So these guys are going, oh, wait, this, this might work. Let me ask you a Steve Morris question. Yes. Steve, do you think that Attenborough, does not show the British Empire quaking in a larger sense at this point because it doesn't serve the narrative of the movie? Were they quaking in a historical sense at this time? Were they aware? Were they scared? Were they worried? Were there conversations in the halls of power about what to do about this little man who is riling up the Indians and actually using nonviolence? to inspire them to defy the great British empire. We only see it in local stuff in these local scenes at this point in the film. We don't know if it's getting out to everyone, right? We're not seeing the queen or the prince or the king or the lords in, uh, in parliament having these conversations at this point. Do you think Attenborough keeps it provincial for now because he has a grander statement he wants to make? So, I'm, I'll tell you where my brain immediately went when you asked that question. Okay. It went to Star Trek. Oh, nice. There's a moment in not one of the best episodes, a very average to below average episode, which is the yeah. immunity syndrome, which oh, yeah, is yeah. where um, a Vulcan starship, the only starship uh, manned entirely by Vulcans, is destroyed. And Spock, much like Ben Kenobi, who senses a great disturbance in the Force, feels all the Vulcans' death. And he feels their emotions, what they were thinking at their last moment before they died. And what they were thinking was astonishment. Yeah. That it wasn't possible that yeah. this could happen to them. That I don't think the British, until... I, it's inconceivable that this could happen. Yeah. I don't think they're quaking in their boots at this moment. I think they're going... This just doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> you know, like, how could this? We're the British. We're the British fucking empire. Yeah. I don't think that's how the queen thought or the king thought it at that point. Yeah, yeah. But that's how they felt. I mean, this doesn't really make sense. Yeah. And yet where we cut to is Lieutenant Governor's residence. It's some months later. And basically there's a, one of the land, one of the most powerful landlords is talking to the lieutenant's governor. Yeah. And he's just pissed off. Like, how is this happening? 
And the lieutenant governor is looking at him going, look, you really raised the rents on these people? You, you raised you, the rents to fund a hunting expedition, you yes. piece of dog shit. You fucking imperialist. You fucking arrogant piece of dog shit. You put these people through hell. And his response, he denied them water. Yep. And his response was, "Is oh, you don't know how hard it is to get these people to work. You know, that I nothing inflames me more than seeing yeah. people in power who abuse um, people in the lower classes for their own fucking benefits, especially when it's to fund their rich bullshit. Oh, yep. Fuel. I just from the deep depth of my soul, it infuriates me, man. And again, it's not like we don't hear shit like that today. True. What it takes Very to true. get these people to work. I'm not going to say who these yeah. people might be in the United right. States. Right. But like, and again, it's why Gandhi had to be in the fields. Yes. Rather than the rich people. Because only when you, cl- you know, rake the latrine and make your own cloth and wear those clothes and eat that food that you get what it's like to be those people. Yeah. You know, who you, you know, what it takes to get these people to work. They work harder than you. You're on a fucking hunting trip. Like, yeah. What have you ever done any work? Yeah. What are you working hard at? Well, you've made this half naked, whatever he is, into an international hero. <laughs> One lone man marching dusty roads, armed only with honesty and a bamboo staff, doing battle with the British Empire. At home, children are writing essays about him. <laughs> Can you imagine today that we, we, we know so little about what goes on in the rest of the world? Oh, yeah. If kids in, you know, in America were writing essays about some guy doing protests on the other side of the world? They should. They should. They should. Education um, is not a negative thing. God damn it. Anyway. And basically, they're going to capitulate. They're going to have yeah. rebates on the rent. They're going to be free to grow whatever crops they want. Basically, it's everything that Gandhi is asking for. That would satisfy him and his majesty's government. And the landlord signs it and then says, we are too damned liberal. <laughs> of course. Yeah. As like, people like that still say. To this yeah. to, like not forcing people to grow whatever they want to grow and not beating them and stealing their water. Yeah, we're too liberal. Perhaps. But at least all this has made the government see some sense about what men like Mr. Gandhi should be allowed and what they should be denied. We see, a, <laughs> this is just funny, we're at Jinnah's residence and we see this beautiful car pull up. Where is Mr. Gandhi? He said he preferred to walk, sir. I followed him most of the way. He's just on the corner. <laughs> and then, then Gandhi walks up. We go into this meeting yeah. with Patel and Nehru and Jinnah, and they introduce Malana Abdul Kalam Azid, Azad, which is played by Vandra Rodan, mm-hmm. uh, who is a Muslim, and they say he was just released from prison. He has a great look. Yes. And it's funny because he's wearing the hat that Malcolm X is wearing at the end of the movie. Yeah. Very similar hat. And then introduces Nehru again and says, of course, you know, Mr. Nehru. And Gandhi says, I'm beginning to know Mr. Nehru. And Nehru, of course, is really the heir to Gandhi's. He's the person that he most put trust in. Yes. To follow after him. What we hear is that there's new legislation against sedition and warrants for people that are, you know, writing seditious materials, and in particular, the things that Gandhi is writing. There is only one answer to that. Direct action on a scale they can never handle. And Nehru says, who's really a disciple of Gandhi, I don't think so. Terrorism would only justify their repression. And what kind of leaders would it throw up? Are they likely to be the men we would want at the head of our country? Same thing today, man. I mean, like people who espouse violence 
Yeah. Violence begets violence, you know. It's true. And Jenna says, I too have read Mr. Gandhi's writings, but I would rather be ruled by an Indian terrorist than an English one. I must say, it seems to me that it's gone beyond remedies like passive resistance. And Gandhi says, If I may, I for one have never advocated passive anything. He stands up, and a servant has entered with the tea. I'm with Mr. Jinnah. We must never submit to such laws, ever. And I think our resistance must be active and provocative. And he takes the tray from the servant. Yeah. I want to embarrass all those who wish to treat us as slaves. Why does he take this tray and serve the tea? It's a smart move because, in a way, he is seeming like a non-threatening person to their ideologies and their points of views and their thoughts and their ideas. So serving the tea, in a way, he's serving them his wisdom. He's serving them his point of view. He's, it's, it's metaphorical and literal. He's serving them something to quench their thirst um, for independence. And so in the tea, there's a symbolism there. But I also think it's he's become so connected to the people of his country that him serving tea is no longer seen as something for the untouchables to do or for the lower class to do or servants to do. He is showing that there is no difference here. And I think it's pretty powerful. I, I think it's, I keep thinking about it. And, and by the way, if you watch Jenna yeah. in this scene, he is very uncomfortable with Gandhi serving the tea. Oh, they're showing the, they're absolutely showing the, they're previewing the division. Attenborough even has a shot where you see Gandhi standing directly in front of Jinnah with the table between them. And Jinnah is sitting down and Gandhi is standing. And you can tell these are the two combatants, the preview for the two combatants that's going to be coming in the back half of the film. And what I think goes on, normally when someone wants power or status, they want to elevate their position in order to gain more status. So, you know, there's the thing of like, I'm going to make my desk and the chair behind my desk taller and make your chair lower. So when you sit in front of me, you're going to be in a lower, less powerful position. Yeah. Gandhi repeatedly puts himself in a lower status position in order to become more powerful. Yeah, that is. Re- and that's what he, I think he's doing right here. I think he is purposely becoming the servant. Yes. To show the power of that. I want to change their minds. Not kill them for weaknesses we all possess. So we could have a whole conversation about that line. <laughs> and then they ask, what resistance would you offer? And he says, and this is the thing, Gandhi has thought this through. This is not, Gandhi has a plan. He is a tactician. Yeah. The law is due to take effect from April the 6th. I want to call upon the nation to make that a day of prayer and fasting. You mean a general strike? I mean a day of prayer and fasting. Of course, no work could be done, no buses, no trains, no factories, no administration. The country would stop. And the reaction goes around the room. My God, it would terrify them. 350 million people at prayer. Even the English newspapers would have to report that. And they talk about whether or not they could do it. And they say... Champara, which is the region that with the indigo that he was just at, stirred yeah. the whole country. They also say, They're calling you Mahatma, the great soul. And he kind of sloughs that off. Fortunately, such news comes very slowly to where I live. <laughs> and it's obvious that Gandhi in this one moment has become the leader of this group. Yeah. 
and everyone's into it except of course jenna <laughs> so we cut to this beautiful estate the viceroy's palace and man every time we cut to the way the british empire lived in india <laughs> it's from the horrible poverty and everything else we've seen it's just like yeah wow nothing's working sir the buses the trains the markets there's not even any ordinary civilian staff here sir and the Viceroy, this is Lord Chelmsworth, played by John Mills, who, by the way, uh, Richard Attenborough describes as possibly the greatest British character actor on film. Wow. That's what Attenborough says about him. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Which is like, that's a long list. That is a long list. I mean, just in this movie, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Is it simply Delhi and Bombay? No, sir. Karachi, Calcutta, Madras, Bangalore. It's, it's total. The army had to take over the telegraph, so... Or we'd be cut off from the world. Can you imagine this? It, well, well, yeah. Well, it's insane to think about that. I mean, most people when they lo- when they can't find their phone go insane for those twenty minutes. Imagine, <laughs> imagine that being days or weeks on end. You know, and the thing that's great about this moment is it's it's a seed that's being planted that teases the wave that's coming, which is that thing that idea. If the Indians stop doing something. The entire country will grind to a halt and all your power won't mean a damn thing because nothing will get done. And later on in the film, Gandhi has, you know, this back and forth with the judge and says, you all will eventually leave because there's no way 100,000 British can control 350 million Indians or something like that. Yep. Yeah, that's the honest truth. People only let you have power. And when people stop buying into the mentality that they can be controlled by a minority, all of a sudden the minority becomes irrelevant. And what it seemed like this massive, overwhelming thing is actually not as overwhelming as you thought. And so those are the tenets of controlling people in mass, which is why people who are the minority in power must create division in order to keep large majorities of people under control. And so this moment here where they're saying, well, we're just going to stop everything. It was a first shot across the bow to show the power that Gandhi has. Absolutely. I mean, it goes to this idea that all power comes from the consent of the governed. Yeah. Which now I can't remember if that's John Stuart Mill or if it's uh, Locke or it's it's one of those guys. It was Bob Dylan. No, I'm just <laughs> it's Bob Dylan. Um, but but like the, there literally is nothing you can do if people don't agree. And I just imagine like, what if everyone in the United States just didn't go to work tomorrow? Yeah. Like it's not just your garbage wouldn't get collected. Your your internet would stop, the electricity would stop. There would be no one to the, at the store, at the gas station, at the I mean like it would be terrifying. Yeah. If um, everybody didn't go to work until certain people were paid a certain amount of money. If everybody stopped paying rent, there was there'd be nothing the yep. landlord could do. I mean it's insane. It's it's, it's incredible. It'd be yep. it'd be chaos. That's why you need the rules of society to function. And their response to what Gandhi has done is arrest him. <laughs> and we cut to a jail cell and there's Gandhi in his striped uniform and Nehru has come to visit. And the first thing he ad- does is address him as Bapu, yeah. father. You too. It seems less formal than Mahatma. <laughs> Can you imagine what it would be like if just everyone just started calling you first father and then great one? Every day. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> The outlaw Bapu. I'll take it. That's it. <laughs> um, 
And what we hear is that since Gandhi's arrests, riots have hardly stopped. Some English civilians have been killed. And the army is attacking crowds with clubs, sometimes worse. And I love Gandhi's response. He takes off his glasses and says, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're not ready yet. That's a profound statement. Yeah. Because he's asking a lot of people. Yes. Yes. That's asking a lot of himself. Oh, yeah. You know, he's not saying screw them. He's saying maybe we're not ready. Maybe we aren't ready yet. Maybe we say we want it. Yeah. But how much do we really want it? Like you said earlier, I mean, Gandhi is very much a man of his principles and his morals and is willing to test himself and he questions himself. And he puts himself through hell to try to prove his dedication to something. And so that's the prism with which he operates in the world. So he wants to see that being returned by the people he is leading to independence. Well, I mean, imagine today. It is a lot to ask. Well, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Imagine today on whatever side of the political divide you are. Mm. And someone came to you and said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go stand in front of the people that you hate and let them not only yell at you, but potentially kick the shit out of you. And you're going to do nothing in America today. Yeah. That's a lot to ask, you know, and and what kind of person would it take to persuade people to do that? The government's afraid. They don't know what to do. They're more afraid of terrorism than of you. The Viceroy has agreed to your release if you will speak for nonviolence. I've never spoken for anything else. And then we see a large crowd and a man in a turban making a speech. England is so powerful. Its army and its navy, all its modern weapons. But when a great power like that strikes defenseless people, it shows its brutality, its own weakness, especially when those people do not strike back. So this guy in this huge crowd is articulating what Gandhi has said. Yep. They are ready. They're ready to, this is a nonviolent protest yep. and the music is very ominous and we see soldiers. Yeah. And again, a great line that teases what's coming, right? He's essentially in the groundwork about them beating defenseless people. And then we're going to see worse. Yeah. It's horribly worse. I, I can remember seeing this sequence for the first time oh, yeah. and being not believing it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's so hard to believe that this is a, a real thing that happened. Yeah. And I looked, I, I researched this massacre as well. And it is pretty accurate to what you see in the film, Steve, which is horrific to consider. Um, and every superpower has this in their mm. history in one version or another. Oh, yeah. Uh, and certainly, I mean, this is so horrible to witness. And then later, the court case or tribunal that is uh, adjourned to discuss this is in many ways even worse, it's, and which uh, we'll get to later, of course. But like the combo of those two scenes is just utterly devastating and brilliant construction. You know, Steve, you're a director, brilliant construction in the story of this film that this hits right in that middle part of the movie. Yep. So here's what happens. We have this peaceful protest. We see the... British army showing up, they have an armored car and the armored car will not fit through this narrow alleyway. Otherwise we would have brought the armored car in, but instead the troops spread out 
form two lines and they face this huge crowd of peaceful protesters. And there's an order for the front rank to kneel. And what we hear, one of the last things we hear from the guy making the speech is, We must have the courage to take their anger. And I think it's such a brilliant directorial choice that one of the last things we hear before what happens happens is the sound of a baby crying. Yep. Harold and Major. And they see this, these soldiers aiming their rifles at them and react. Should we issue a warning, sir? They've had their warning. No meetings. And this is uh, General Dyer played by Edward Fox. And he says, without hesitation... And it's not just one shot. They open fire and they continue firing at this screaming, panicked crowd, totally defenseless, and they shoot them down. One of the one of the worst moments is as you see them firing and you see the spent shells just piling up at their feet. Yeah. And then someone notices that they're trying to escape this area, this courtyard to the left, and you, and they all turn to the left and open fire on the people trying to escape. Yeah. This is also where I can't imagine the soldiers many of whom are Indian. Yeah. You know, once again, this is the idea of an occupying power An occupying power. And we saw this, Steve, we saw this. I mean, I hope I can speak this correctly because I walk into a minefield with this stuff, but like in the Holocaust, we saw Jews turning in other Jews out of fear, yeah. uh, out of being indoctrinated into believing, you know, that there are certain elements that can be taken out by the Nazis. We've seen this when an occupying force comes in and indoctrinates people into believing a certain thing and believing even about their own people, the worst things possible. And we're seeing that, as you say, in our political divide, I think we're seeing it on both sides. Now it can be quite fascinating in a horrible way to witness. It's the dehumanization because you cannot kill unless you're a goddamn sociopath. You cannot kill this many people until you and your mind have created this alternate reality that they are somehow less than human. And they turn into ants, as Orson Welles said in, third man, in The Third Man. And we see this in all the time. People of color turning in on their own, turning on their own, or people within uh, a country turning on their own citizens um, for their own reasons or because an occupying force has brainwashed them into believing these things. And certainly here, there's probably a fear. If I don't shoot, I will be next. Mm -hmm. Right? And so there's that fear as well, the fear of life and death hanging over your head. I mean, people in general do what authority tells them to do. Yeah. That's what they do. There's Great the point. famous uh, experiment where mm. they brought people in and they had them on the other side of this glass with someone hooked up to wires. And if the people answered the question wrong, they had a volunteer and they said, okay, give them a, a level one shock. If they answer too wrong, give them a level two shock, level three. And it goes all the way up to the point where they're screaming in pain and begging. And yeah. even to the point where the people go unconscious that they're shocking. And over and over again, the volunteers continue to shock them because the authority says to. Now, no one is being shocked. That was what the, exper the experiment was to see if people would do this. And over and over again, they did it. Men were much more likely to go all the way with the shocks than women. And the people least likely to do that were nurses, female nurses. 
were the ones who were most likely to refuse. But most people just kept shocking people. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nuts. And this sequence goes on and on and on. And we see children, bloody children crying. And then we see this people just jumping into this big hole, stone kind of hole in the middle of the courtyard over and over again just to escape the gunfire. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And then there's a hard cut from all this noise and all this chaos to this, as you said, this tribunal. Yeah. And there is General Dyer. And I got to say, Edward Fox's performance is oh. incredible. It's a, yeah. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Because it is so cold. Yes. General Dyer, is it correct that you ordered your troops to fire at the thickest part of the crowd? That is so. 1,516 people with 1,650 bullets. There were over 300 people killed. My intention was to inflict a lesson that would have an impact throughout all India. Had you been able to take in the armored car, would you have opened fire with the machine gun? I think probably, yes. It's incredible his lack of shame. Yeah. You know? Because he, I think, 100% believes that he did the right thing. Yep. General, did you realize there were children and women in the crowd? I did. But that was irrelevant to the point you were making. That is correct. I don't, I don't know how to comment on the scene, you know? It's, well, you know, the thing with being in the military, the thing with knowing about the military is just like, there are people who believe a certain thing. And they believe, and certainly Dyer. And listen, if you do the historical dive into Dyer here, there were people who supported what Dyer did, even in I'm sure there were. I'm yeah. sure. And there were people who said, oh, he saved India because they thought this would stop the rebellion. You know, the British Raj apparently was very much in favor. Well, not in favor, but the, did I have an issue with Dyer did, what Dyer did. And so you saw that coming back. And brother, we see that now. You know, things that make sense to us that is terrible there are other harder edged political sides of things who look at it and go no this was the right thing to do and certainly he was adamant because he was relieved of command afterwards uh and he was he was told he was not going to be re-employed but he tried to use political maneuvering to get himself back in a position of power so clearly he didn't have remorse over this after it all went down even no. though everyone told him, or not everyone, but a lot of people told him uh, he, that he was wrong and he was denounced, and the, both in Britain and India. Um, and this is an element that becomes something later on in the film where people in Britain are in support of what Gandhi is doing, which is a real mindfuck for the people in power in Britain at the time. So his reaction to all of this makes sense for him because he is very much a military guy, and in him, everything is black and white. And there are people like that in the military and people may be uncomfortable with hearing this, but sometimes people like that are very useful in wartime situations. This was not a wartime situation. And you have to wonder who put this person in charge and who knew the proclivities of this person to do something like this, who gave the order for this person to show up and do this. And it clearly seems from the uh, in inquiry here, he did not go rogue because none of the other military men that are there testify against him. 
and it's just the judges. And I love that they have an Indian judge there to yeah. kind of have the questions um, about it. And you're right. It's a, it's a great scene in terms of acting and writing, but it's even more chilling at times for me than the massacre because that a human being could be that cold about the death of so many women and children, old people and, you know, people of in their prime knowingly stopping them from escaping or shutting off the only route to escape. So they're essentially fish in a barrel that takes a certain level of sociopathy that I cannot understand. I, I, I go back to the very first thing you said, which was you have to somehow make these people not human in yes. order to justify this. And I'm just going to say anytime that, that let's just say anytime there are kids involved and horrible things are happening to kids. And if you're thinking that's okay, that's a problem. Yeah. You, you, you got to I think you need to rewatch the scene and think a lot about it because yeah, it's not okay. And this is 1919. And in 1921, when the massacre happens in 1921, he is still defending himself and he's still saying, that India does not want self-government. She does not understand it. And there were a number of hard-line British politicians and military people who were outspoken about this uh, as well, including Churchill, which was a really oh, surprising yeah. thing for me, who was an admirer of Churchill, World War II Churchill at least, um, to see some of the other very unsavory points of views that Churchill had. It's just like Teddy Roosevelt. I love Teddy Roosevelt, but if you explore some of the things that Teddy did, you kind of, you know, you kind of have to come to terms with that stuff and how you feel about it. So Churchill here hated Gandhi all the way up until the end. And oh, yeah. so there are just some people, the hardline British people that felt that India was, um, how can I say this? India was, uh, uh, I don't know, arrogant to think they could break away or they were, uh, well, they, he, they, ungrateful. I, I would, ungrateful. That's what. Well, I, definitely, I think that. But also, they clearly thought India they were incompetent. Yes, they were incapable. Savages. Of, yeah, they, they were, were. Yeah, they were not civilized. Could they possibly were, be enlightened? Yeah. And they should be really grateful for these wonderful British people who came in and helped them out. And we're going to explode some of those myths in a little while. But yeah. but like but but what I would say is like a good example of how we blind ourselves to this stuff is. To this day, many people talk about America being the hope of freedom and spreading democracy yeah. around the world. And all we do is complain about our democracy, right. you know, and like that combo of saying our it doesn't work. Congress is broken. The government <laughs> is broken. All this stuff is terrible. It doesn't work at all. Let's go spread it around the world <laughs> and not seeing a contradiction in there. And that's what happens with the British Empire is they go, well, they we clearly know what we're doing, even though obviously they don't know what they're doing in all sorts of ways. By the way, I literally just had to pause the movie for a while after the trial. Oh, just, I'm sure. I just had to walk away. Not, not realizing that we're right at the right up at the intermission. Uh, and what happens next is we go back to the scene of the crime, yes. back to this stone hole in the center of the courtyard. And there is Gandhi looking down into the pit where so many people died and suffered. There's still bloodstains on the streaking the sides the music is very somber and then we cut to Nehru who's standing on the opposite side looking at each other and that is the end of act one of Gandhi 
So as we head into intermission, I think obviously this is a good time to end part two of our exploration of Gandhi. We've gotten so many interesting comments, so many, such great discussion on social media, and we'd love that to continue. If you could visit us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you could subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where we love your reviews, on YouTube, where we love your comments. Of course, you could support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you might get your own question read on an upcoming episode of the cinephiles and you can also buy or stream gandhi along with every other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net and you can find me at sr morris and sr morris one on twitter and instagram respectively and enterprise incidents for all of your star trek needs uh john how would people find you you can also find me at the roca says on twitter instagram and tiktok the outlaw nation on twitch uh and my youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says and my other podcasts the uh, top 10 the geek buddies Strong style and the hot mic. This is my life now. Man, that's a lot of shows. No doubt. <laughs> well, <laughs> the only show we're talking about right now is the Cinephiles Exploration of Gandhi, which we will continue next week 